Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Blanchett. Today's episode is part seven of a 12-part series titled COVID-19 Answering the Questions. This series features brief updates on the latest incidents and clinical data related to COVID-19 diagnosis, prevention, and management, each followed by an in-depth question and answer session designed to address infectious disease specialists' most pressing COVID-19 questions. During this episode, Professor Leo Yi Sin from the National University of Singapore and the National Center for Infectious Disease in Singapore will provide a brief update on COVID-19 among healthcare workers. For more information about Professor Leo and for a link to additional online education from CCO's COVID-19 Comprehensive Resource Center, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear a brief COVID-19 update and answers to clinician questions by Professor Leo. Hello, thank you for joining me for these sessions. Now, these sessions we try to address some of the issues related to COVID-19 as well as healthcare workers. Before we do that, let's look have a look at the impact of COVID-19 around the world. As of now, the confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the world has reached 21 million cases and has caused 775,000 deaths and the rest of them recovered. Now, if you look at the breakdown of the cases, the cases in the United States at this point in time has exceeded 5 million cases, and of which about 170 of them have died of the disease. And the second affected countries is Brazil, currently stands at more than 3 million cases, and similarly, a significant number of deaths has been caused by COVID-19. Within Asia, India is the most number of cases. Around about 2.6 million uh, cases has been reported, as well as other countries such as Russia and South Africa that's being listed in this, uh, in this slide. So as of now, we know that COVID-19 has spread around the world. It has caused significant number of cases and significant number of mortality. Now let's look at the COVID impact and the issues related to COVID and healthcare workers. Here, I would like to introduce to you three studies that have been published from Singapore uh, involving three general hospitals, looking at the hospital-based strategies that's been put in place to be able to cope with COVID-19 and practices within the hospital settings. So first of all, let's look at the first study that's being published in Clinical Infectious Disease Journal. Now, this study was produced by Tantok Singh Hospital. That is a 1,600 beds hospital with more than 10,000 healthcare workers. And this hospital co-locate with the National Center for Infectious Diseases, the place where I work and it's also the uh, centralized management of COVID-19 cases in Singapore. So all in all, the whole campus managed up to 76% of all the COVID confirmed cases in Singapore as of February 23rd, 2020. Just a bit of background, the first COVID-19 cases arrived in Singapore on the 23rd of January. So this is about a month into the COVID-19 actions in Singapore. Now, cases initially were mostly returnees from Wuhan as well as travellers from Wuhan. 
the entire hospitals was geared up at a point in time to be able to cope with cases coming in from the community as well as from the um, returning travellers. So what the hospital has done together with National Centre for Infectious Diseases is to put up these three pronged strategies. First is to look at risk-based personal protective equipment. The second one is to look at surveillance of healthcare workers for fever as well as illness. And third is to have enhanced surveillance of illnesses that are experienced by the healthcare workers. Let's look at the, the studies in greater detail. Now let's look at risk-based personal protective equipment as well as fever illness surveillance strategies in the inpatient setting. Now the table shows you basically two areas that we focus on. One is on the job scope or the risk of the job of the individuals and whether the individuals come into direct contact with potential COVID-19 cases. And it's then break it down in terms of the area of services into high-risk areas as well as lower-risk area. Now, high-risk areas include emergency department, including the National Centre of Infectious Disease Screening Centre, as well as Infectious Disease Clinic. Any other areas, the common areas that are not having direct fronting to take care of COVID-19 cases, consider as low-risk area. And the use of personal protective equipment is geared towards the area as well as the risk of clinical services. So in high-risk area, all the frontline providers were required to put on N95 masks, eye protection, gown, and glove. In a non-high-risk area or the common area, all the healthcare workers are required to put on a surgical mask. So universal mandatory surgical mask has been in uh, the system since the start of COVID-19 in Singapore. Now, next we look at fever and illness surveillance strategies. Now, these strategies, in fact, was built on from the past experience of SARS in the year 2003, but the system has been put in place to be able to activate it to survey healthcare workers should they develop symptoms. So staff were required to report temperature twice daily and report the clinical illness through standardized internet-based electronic form. And the information were then captured centrally. Now the data is then authenticated against individual staff identity and profile and is being saved in the system. Uh, it's what we call an S3 system. At the same time, staff are also required to declare their travel information, particularly for the staff that are returning from China within 14 days uh, and they are being placed in close surveillance. And the third prong of the strategies of the hospital is to look at enhanced surveillance. Now, this was activated during the COVID period where we required all staff who develop acute respiratory illness symptoms to be seen at either the emergency department or the screening center. And we have developed a system where the staff are given a safe, fast track to access this clinical care area that is separated from the general public seeking for attention. Now, these staff with the clinical illness of acute respiratory symptoms will be swapped and also will be provided with medical leave for five days. And they will then need to report back to occupational health clinic to be reassessed before they can be reintroduced back into uh, the system 
and into the care area. So all these three systems work in place in three prong uh, to be able to keep the entire system as well as healthcare workers safe in the working environment. So within the one month durations of the uh, survey and study, um, the whole system had put 10,583 healthcare workers under surveillance. So essentially all the healthcare workers and 1,524 healthcare workers were put under closed surveillance. In other words, those who declare to have history of travel or those with acute respiratory illness or those individuals with close contact with the um, uh, patients. And we have a median healthcare worker's illness episodes at about eight per day out of 10,000 over healthcare workers. In total, 10% of them who seek medical care require hospitalizations. We were fortunate that within the one month, we had no cases of COVID-19 among the healthcare workers in Tantok Singh Hospital that is jointly with the National Center for Infectious Disease. Now, next we looked at another healthcare providing center that is Singapore General Hospital. In fact, it's the largest uh, general hospitals in Singapore, about 1,800 beds. Similarly, around about 10,000 healthcare providers using very similar uh, uh, strategies uh, in the way we coped with COVID-19. First of all, they have mandatory reporting to the staff clinic of acute respiratory illness among the healthcare workers. And they also started the syndromic surveillance to detect potential COVID-19 clusters. And lastly is the ability for the entire system to be activated to do assessment as well as management of the outbreak. Of note, the uh, hospital reported 14 COVID-19 cases among healthcare workers with acute respiratory illness. Now those are all symptomatic COVID-19 healthcare workers. And they identified two linked cases with intra-hospital transmissions. Now, interestingly, not from the patient, but it is among colleagues who sat very closely to one another. And there were no evidence of nosocomial transmissions of COVID-19 to healthcare workers or patients following the introductions of the containment strategy that is right from the start of the COVID-19 epidemic in Singapore. Now let's move to the uh, third paper that was published uh, by the uh, Singapore uh, clinicians. Now this one have a slightly different way of looking at things. This is outpatient clinic uh, provisions of care in a tertiary hospital. Now we know that uh, during outbreak, uh, during epidemic, uh, COVID-19 epidemic, a lot of the resources and energy were drained to take care of COVID-19 cases. But what these centers did was to make sure that their cases with chronic medical conditions can still continue to be taken care of in an outpatient setting. So what they have done is to continue the provisions of care, but having very clear segregations of work among the healthcare workers. So what they did was to have very small teams of healthcare workers and segregate them to a consistent site for them to take care of the patient separately. And the healthcare workers work in their own vaccinated area without any cross-working uh, arrangement. And they work within their own specific space and kept to the social distancing uh, measures. And in 
additions to that, uh, the clinics decided to reduce the number and frequency of clinic visits. So they bring back the patients less frequently, but increase the connection through telemedicines. So they will then provide connections to the patients for them to be able to seek medical consultations through teleconferencing. And prior to the uh, teleconferencing and clinic visits, they did a pre-clinic screening to screen for history of fever, respiratory symptoms, and potential exposure to patients with COVID-19. When all these things being put in place, they have demonstrated that in the system, they are able to take care of chronic cases that do not need hospitalizations, can continue to be safely being cared for in the outpatient setting. Now, moving from Singapore to other parts of the world, let me just run through with you the US CDC guidance for non-US healthcare workers, monitoring of symptoms following COVID-19 exposure. Now, it's important then to first look at risk exposure. What would be the high risk as well as what would constitute a low risk exposure? Let's look at the bullet right at the, at the bottom in terms of high risk exposure is defined as close contact with COVID-19 in the community or direct care provisions to COVID-19 patients without personal protective equipment or subsequent hand hygiene. For low-risk exposures will be defined as any contact with the persons with COVID-19 that is not a high-risk exposure. Now, for high-risk exposure, active monitoring of the healthcare workers would be recommended at least daily communications with the healthcare facilities and the exposed healthcare workers. Contacts of the communications can be remote or can be in person. And the healthcare workers should be assessed for COVID-19 symptoms, particularly fever as well as respiratory symptoms. For the low-risk exposure healthcare workers, it's recommended for them to have self-monitoring they should monitor themselves for fever as well as other COVID-19 symptoms. And the healthcare facility should offer a point of contact for healthcare workers who develop COVID-19 symptoms. And that is allowed them to be further assessed. Now let's move to this uh, relatively uh, complex and complicated workflow uh, in terms of the management algorithm. So essentially, the important thing is to look at the durations, when was the exposure occurred. The next is to look at risk exposure, and the next is to look at symptoms. So for individuals who came into contact with the persons with COVID-19 in the past 14 days, it's important to assess and look out for symptoms. If they do develop symptoms, especially upper respiratory tract symptoms, is then will be recommended for them to be assessed, to be tested. If they were to be tested positive, then it will be a case management that you can see in the orange triangle. For the individuals without any symptoms, we will then have to assess the level of risk, whether it's high-risk exposure or low-risk exposure as defined earlier on. For the high-risk exposure, it's important to monitor their clinical symptoms, have good communications between healthcare workers and the healthcare facilities. And it's important that they should be monitored up to 14 days as the general takes in terms of the incubation period. Should they develop symptoms, it is important for them to again be assessed whether or not they could be infected with COVID-19. 
for individuals without symptoms and for individuals who recovered from symptoms and are not COVID-19, then they can return back to work. Now, let's move down in terms of taking care of uh, uh, COVID-19 positive individuals as well as exposure. Now, again, this is the non-US healthcare workers guideline when to return to work if they develop symptoms. In other words, symptomatic COVID-19 healthcare workers. Now, there are two strategies being recommended by the US CDC. One is by symptom-based strategies. Another one is by test-based strategy. Let's look at symptom-based strategy. For healthcare workers with symptomatic COVID-19, they should not return to work until at least 24 hours after recovery. Now, this is a new recommendation. Before that, it was recommended to be at least 72 hours. And without symptoms is defined as absence of fever, without any use of antipyretic and improved respiratory symptoms such as cough and dyspnea. And it must be at least 10 days after the first occurrence of symptoms. Whereas for a test-based strategies, the healthcare workers who develop symptoms should not return to work if they have absence of fever without the use of antipyretic and improve respiratory symptoms and two confirmed negative SARS-CoV-2 tests conducted on separate respiratory symptoms taken 24 hours apart. Now, this is to deal with symptomatic healthcare workers with COVID-19. Next, we look at healthcare workers without any symptoms, but COVID-19 positive. As we know that COVID-19 can have asymptomatic infections, and sometimes it can be pre-symptomatic, tested positive before they develop symptoms. Now, again, the strategy is also divided into time-based strategy and test-based strategy. For time-based strategy, the asymptomatic healthcare workers who remain asymptomatic should not return to work until 10 days after first positive SARS-CoV test, assuming that they continue to be absence of symptoms. And use symptom-based or test-based strategy in healthcare workers who develop symptoms. So in other words, should they subsequently develop symptoms, you will then go back to the recommendations we mentioned earlier on, how to take care of symptomatic COVID-19 patients. For test-based strategy for asymptomatic healthcare workers that remain asymptomatic, they should not return to work until two times confirmed negative SARS-CoV-2 tests conducted on separate respiratory sample taken more than 24 hours apart. So essentially, uh, I've recommended you, the US CDC healthcare workers in a non-US setting, the management of the COVID-19 healthcare workers. Now, this recommendation is also very similar to the US-based healthcare workers. So thank you, Professor Leo, for that excellent presentation. And now we're going we're gonna to turn over to some questions. Um, so we will, we've had quite a few. We'll get to as many as we can in the time we have. Another participant asks, what about serological surveillance for COVID-19 and healthcare workers? Is there some any practical advantage to, to serological surveillance? Well, I think it should be uh, situation-based, um, how we would want to do 
either the population-based zero surveillance or it just uh, targeted the zero surveillance uh, among the uh, high risk or any specific targeted uh, group. I think for healthcare workers, it is a very special group. I would say that uh, the risk of the healthcare workers getting COVID-19, in fact, are twofold. One is they could potentially get themselves exposed and infected during the course of work. Two is that they carry exactly the same risk as any other persons in the community. And uh, therefore, it is a value for us to understand the uh, zero prevalence uh, and doing zero survey uh, among healthcare workers. But at the same time, uh, perhaps we, um, I do not want to confuse the issue more, uh, but uh, there, there are considerations in terms of what serology test kit to use because the interpretations may be different and as well as the durations of uh, testing for the uh, serology test. As of now, we do have quite a number of reports from different parts of the world suggesting that the serology test may return from positive to negative or zero reversions that may be reported by uh, different regions. And therefore, I think we have to do keep in mind some of the practical issues when we decided to do uh, zero prevalence studies uh, in any targeted group. Thank you. Okay, great. Um, so this question of testing um, relates to the next participant's question. They ask if, uh, could you review the different modalities for testing and the utility of each type? So for example, when to use them and how to interpret an antigen test versus PCR versus antibody testing? Well, I think it's a very good practical question. Um, then we have to look at the viral dynamic as well as the uh, antibody serology dynamic uh, during the entire course of clinical illness. Um, so we now know that the virus shedding or the amount of virus that we can recover from the respiratory system starts from the very early, during the early phase of clinical illness, and perhaps even before they start to have experienced uh, clinical illness. So there's a pre-symptomatic phase. And then the uh, viral load from the respiratory sample decline over time. And by the time they reach second week or the pneumonia phase, the viral load generally is not as high as during the acute phase. So during the acute phase, a good test to be used will then be a direct detection of the presence of viral uh, material. And PCR has been the gold standard so far uh, using to detect or diagnose COVID-19. Um, as the uh, viral load declined over time, um, and as the patients recovered, uh, they will then produce antibodies that can be detected using serology tests now, for COVID-19, somehow the antibody response seems to be delayed and many of the test kit may not be able to pick up a positive result until the patients reach day 14 or so. And most of the serology tests at this point in time pointing that the highest level of antibodies is somewhere around day 21 to day 28. So that will be a best period for us to use serology test kit as a form of diagnosis of an individual. So from now, you will realize that during acute phase, PCR is the gold standard in diagnosing COVID-19. When we pass through the acute phase of the illness into third week, fourth week of clinical illness, 
serology can be harmed in other methods, alternative methods to make clinical diagnosis. Great, that was really helpful. Thank you. The next question is, is are there any data or recommendations for the outpatient management of COVID-19? And when should one pursue more aggressive workups such as a CT angiography or send to the emergency department because so many patients have chest pain and shortness of breath? Yes, um, very good and practical questions. And again, I think this depends on the uh, policies in place. I think different healthcare settings uh, would have different kind of uh, policies. Uh, in Singapore, our policy is to admit every COVID-19 patients until they are either proven PCR times two negative or they are completely asymptomatic up to day 21 before we discharge them back into uh, the community uh, setting. So it really depends on the, um, the healthcare setting. Um, I do understand that uh, some of the, the healthcare system policy is only to admit the individuals should they require medical attention. Having chest pain, I would say, is not an uncommon feature. We have experienced many patients with chest pain. And uh, when we analyze them, bring them back into acute care setting with ECG and other form of testing, many of them may be normal looking. Uh, but I just want to caution that uh, this disease is yet a lot of phenomena that we need to learn from the histopathology study so far, from some of the post-mortem reports, we realize a lot of micro-thrombus, micro-infarct in the patients. So we do not know whether these clinical symptoms of chest pain, in fact, represents episodes of micro-infarct. We just do not know. But I think it would be worthwhile to monitor the patients and put them under close watch. Okay, great. Um, the next question is from Luis, who asks, for patients who progress well, have 10 days or more of, of illness, but are fever-free for more than 24 hours, are, and they presumably would be, would they be transferred to non-COVID areas at that point? And then the second part of the question is, if they require surgery, is the staff's level of protection standard or higher? Yes, we can, we can base on what we have learned so far in terms of the infectiousness as well as the virus shedding patterns. Uh, the, the recommendations about the 10 days um, in terms of the, um, the discharge uh, uh, recommendations essentially is based on the respiratory tract uh, virus shedding. We now know that the viral load declined with time and most of the uh, study, including uh, studies from uh, European countries, Germany and uh, China, as well as Singapore, uh, we identified that by day 10, most of the individuals would have high enough CT value, low viral load, and non-culturable from the respiratory sample. Mm -hmm. And for, with that kind of uh, evidence and information, most of the policy decisions makers are comfortable at this point in time in making a recommendations that the persons essentially deem non-infectious by the time they reach 10 days of clinical illness and symptom-free. I think those were the um, evidence we have in place in terms of making this kind of recommendation. So in other words, we have reasons to believe that if the persons, the patients with COVID-19, asymptomatic at day 10 of clinical illness would be 
relatively non-infectious. And then uh, th th these individuals will then require to be taken care of for many other potential non-COVID related medical issues. Okay, great. Okay, the next question asks about, um, uh, uh, could you explain um, management, uh, anticoagulation um, management, and then also how that is, you're managing that for patients who are discharged? Yes, I think this is a piece of work where, um, where I am, where I'm from, um, perhaps see the issues a little bit differently from other parts of the world. Uh, we had just recently gone through our own local data in Singapore to look at the incidence of uh, this coagulopathy uh, in our own populations. And we found very low incidence of, uh, uh, of uh, 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 thromboembolic event, especially the venous thromboembolic event. However, we do see a significant uh, increase in incidence on those individuals in the ICU. So the ICU incidence of thromboembolic uh, uh, events in Singapore is about 12%. Whereas in the, the non-ICU cases, the general patients, is way less than 1%, is 0.7%. So with that kind of incidence, it becomes very difficult to make very sensible, broad anticoagulation uh, policy so at this point in Singapore, uh, we have recommended that for patients that do not require ICU care, in general, we don't jump into anticoagulation therapy. For those individuals in the ICU, a low dose heparin, uh, low molecular weight heparin, low dose, uh, is now generally being used with cautions and with frequent monitoring because we do have patients who bleed while on anticoagulants. So I think it's a little bit different uh, in terms of our approach in Singapore from other parts of the world, where you see a higher incidence of thromboembolic phenomena. Uh, for individuals discharged from the hospital in general, at this point in time, we don't routinely do that unless there is good um, pre-morbid risk that we will continue on with anticoagulant therapy. Okay, that makes sense. It's very interesting too, the different, the different uh, presentations that may be seen in different places. Um, okay, we have time for one more question. And this is a, a little bit of a long question, but it really relates to the topic. So I thought it might be helpful to ask. Um, this person is a hospitalist, primarily admitting from the ER. Um, and their question is actually about their documentation room. So they describe that they have about a 20 foot by 20 foot documentation room that typically has about 10 people in it at any time, a mix of doctors and case managers. There's no windows, only regular hospital ventilation. Emergency room doctors frequently come in and out to present patients to them. And sometimes they are not wearing masks. Sometimes uh, people take off their masks to eat. They're in there for uh, extensive periods, sometimes a 10 hour shift. Computers are spaced about two to three feet apart. And the person is asking for recommendations about what type of PPE might be best in that setting. Um, they're concerned and they know of several of the doctors who've used the room who've, who've contracted COVID-19. If I may, I would recommend to have a good look at the environment to see whether or not there is any adjustment to the environment that can make the, the place safer to the user. 
um, for the fact that uh, at this point, there are still a lot of uh, debates and research ongoing to prove the fact whether COVID-19 can be an airborne conditions. And many of you would also be aware that WHO a few weeks ago released the recommendations, um, taking notice that the properties of uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, whether the potential of uh, airborne transmissions uh, can happen. And it did um, acknowledge that in a poorly ventilated place, uh, they cannot rule out the possibility. So I think if I may, I would recommend that uh, have a good look at the infrastructure of the room uh, to see whether or not any uh, engineering work can be done to make the place safer. Uh, in unsafe place, I would say that all the non-pharmaceutical uh, prevention measures should be put up. That will include mask, good hand hygiene, good environmental cleaning, as well as good uh, distancing between uh, individuals. And, and one point I just want to add that once you take out your mask because of drinking and, and eating, that is the risk um, that we have to factor in. Great. Thank you very much, Professor Leo. And thanks to our listeners. As a reminder, to view the COVID-19 Comprehensive Resource Center on the Clinical Care Options website, click on the link in the show notes. Please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thanks.